Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. His name is Daniel. And he's probably one of the most famous names in all of the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. And yet I think so many people, both inside and outside the church, would say that they know, they understand the thrust of his life's story. So for some people, this conjures up images of men in a fiery furnace somewhere. For others, a knight stuck in this pit with a bunch of ravenous lions. Maybe even for others, you grew up in the church, you remember drawing pictures of lions and furnaces or these strange prophecies and dreams. And this morning I want to say that the miracles and the prophecies of Daniel's life is not the focus of the book that bears his name. This morning as we start a brand new sermon series called Thriving in Babylon, I want to show us that God did something so significant, so profound in the heart, in the character of this man called Daniel, that he found a way in a culture far more wicked than anything that we face here today to serve God with such integrity and with such passion that he was honored by peasants and kings and even an entire empire at one stage. He was not simply just living it out. He was not simply just surviving. He was not just simply keeping head above water. God brought him to a place where he was thriving in his Babylon. Now, why is that so important for you and me here today? Thousands of years later, after this man's life wraps up, why in 2019 is this such a crucial thing for us to grasp, especially if you here this morning are a Jesus follower? Why is this so important? Here's the thing, friends. I want to tell you that in 2019, the average South African is not doing well in terms of heart and in terms of countenance. So the seventh annual Happiness World Report was released in March, and out of 156 countries, um, Finland, once again, topped this list. I don't know what it is with the Finnish people, but they just every year say that they are in such a good place. They're loving life. But South Africa, us collectively as a people, we said together that we have slid all the way down to 107th in the world. We are lower than some countries facing civil war at the moment. Now, maybe stage four load shedding and uncertainties in the economy and um, maybe corruption and nepotism and crime and all these things, maybe that's the reason. I say spot on. I can absolutely agree. But the challenge for us as a church this morning, if you're part of what we are doing here, of this family and this mission together, it's not that the people of our city or our country are feeling hopeless. It's the fact that many Christians, Jesus followers, find themselves in the same place feeling uncertain, feeling shaken, feeling that maybe the best decision is just to jump ship and go somewhere else. And the challenge with that, friends, is that is not the calling that God has put upon our lives. He has not called us to live in a state of timidity and uncertainty. He has called us to be salt in a tasteless world. He has called us to be light in a dark space. He's called us to be a shining city on a hill. So what does that mean? I was thinking of Alan Platt. He's the founder of our Doxedo family. In his book, City Changes, in the introduction, he writes about where many cities find themselves and how it feels so similar to the situation of Daniel and Babylon and what God has called us to. So just listen with me. It's not on the screen. He says, these cities like Pretoria and so many other global cities are affluent and influential and right alongside human achievement marches human depravity. 
I often ask myself whether this narrative can be changed. I wonder what may be done so that this confused generation will discover the grace of God, a gift he shares freely with all humanity. We live in a world where violence done by people against people is so prevalent, there's not enough time on the news to talk about it all. These days, a murderer's rampage has to be so spectacular in some way or extremely close to home to get coverage on the air. Children are abducted, raped, and murdered, then dropped into dumpsters. Pregnant women are gunned down while answering the door. Terrorists line up prisoners to decapitate them for the camera and burn them alive in cages. Illegal drag races force other drivers off the road, leaving beloved innocents dead or paralyzed. Drug capers of honest judges assassinated in front of World leaders are deposed for corruption and murder, or worse, they're not deposed. And those are just the news stories I happened to read on the day I wrote this. Never mind our epidemics of war crime, genocide, ethnic violence, injustice, child abuse, cronyism, graft, fraud, divorce, drug use, homelessness, dehumanization, elder abuse, and abortion, just to name a few. If you are like me, you are ready to cry out, give us wisdom, understanding, and strategy, Lord Jesus. Help us raise and release city changers who can change this reality and make a difference. Friend, if you are a Christ follower here this morning, God does not want you to simply exist, sucking up air and just feeling that you are just about making it. He wants us to be present, to be active, to be front-footed, to be passionate, to be involved, to have our hands dirty in the spiritual lostness and social pain and cultural brokenness of the city. He wants his church, his bride, his people to thrive in Babylon. You see, the focus of this book is not wild prophecies and crazy adventures. It's the fact that God has a calling upon his people's lives, even when everything goes to hell in a handbasket. God has called you and me. So we're going to journey through this book over the next couple of weeks, just five. And so with that, I want to say that usually like we do with the book of Philippians, we hike through it very slowly, oftentimes verse by verse. And we're not going to do the same with the book of Daniel because we only have five weeks. It would take probably a whole year to do this thing justice. So instead of hiking through the book where we have time to smell every flower and turn over every you know, rock, what we're going to do is we're going to fly over the terrain in five weeks. We're going to take the big picture, the themes, the, the crisis moments and the focus of this book. And as we do that, I want you to discover what God has called you and me, and not just as individuals like we Westerners often prefer to think, but for us as a church, what has God called us as a community for? You with me? Amen. Are you happy? Maybe the lights for these uh, poor friends on my right here who are living in the dark. So if you open your Bible with me this morning, please remember if you come to Doxa Hatfield, no judgment, but please bring a Bible with, and your Bible, the one that you read, whether it's on your phone, your tablet, whether it's your scroll, whether your, uh, I don't know, owl is going to bring it to you now during the service, make sure you have a Bible with. But you'll find Daniel there in the middle of your Old Testament, more or less, between some equally strangely named books. And this is how the book starts. Read with me. Daniel 1 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility 
Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, from the Judahites, were Daniel, the man that we're reading about, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Just to there today. You see, just to back up for a moment, the Old Testament tells us this epic narrative stretching over a couple of thousand years of God calling out a family that eventually becomes a nation And he has this promise that he is going to extend this geopolitical focus of the people of Israel to the whole world. He wants to bless every tongue and tribe through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in the beginning stages of the story of the nation of Israel, it's an up and down one. God makes covenants and promises he commits, but the people, they flake out and they fail and they stumble like you and I often do. And so it's up and down. And often God has to leave them to their own devices. And at one season, exactly like that, we see the nation so wrought with political and just ethnic issues that they break into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. And so the northern kingdom keeps the name Israel. The southern kingdom takes the name Judah. And they have the capital city of Jerusalem. And then God sends all these messengers. He sends all these prophets and he says, I want you to turn back to my heart. I want to prosper you. I want to walk the road with you, but I'm calling you back. But the people ignore it. It falls on deaf ears. And so eventually the the typification in the Bible, the archetype of evil in the Bible, the land of Babylon, the people of Babylon come and they conquer them. And this king who was renowned as an evil dictator. He comes and he brutalizes the people of Jerusalem. He breaks down their walls. He ransacks the temple, burns it down, and he kidnaps all their leaders, and he takes most of the young men and women, almost a 1,500-kilometer journey back to their city to live and die in exile. Now, friends, I don't know if you realize this, but if we read this book with the wrong lens, we're going to come away with such a, such a skewed picture. So before we jump into what I think, because this morning I want to lay just an introduction. The next four weeks we'll dive into the big themes of the book. But this morning I want us to grasp the most difficult question and the most profound question that this book asks of us. And it's one people have wrestled with since people have been able to wrestle with anything. But before we get there, that central question, two things I want you to understand this morning. Maybe this is a quick Bible lesson for all of us as well. Two ways I don't want us to read the book of Daniel and most of the Bible. The first is to moralize it, and the second is to mysticize it. If I moralize the book, I miss the point. If I mysticize the book, I miss the point. Yes, how it works. If I moralize the book of Daniel, like most of the Old Testament narratives especially, I draw these overly simplistic little connections between, oh, I see, Daniel is doing X, Y, and Z. I'm just going to do the same. If I do the good things that God calls me to do, if I'm a good moral person, God will still all the lions in my life. God will save me from all the fires of my life. If I just live like Daniel, be like Daniel, be daring like Daniel. If I do that, moralizing leads to disappointment. 
But the second thing, and I'm not saying, please hear me this morning, I'm not saying that God doesn't teach us good moral things from the Old Testament. I'm saying that's not the focus of this book. It's not to give us a three steps to successful living life seminar. The second thing is if you mysticize it. This is when everything in the Bible becomes a code that you need to decipher. It's this secret message we need to uncover. And people, you know, with, with tinfoil hats on the internet explain to you with these long, you know, worded uh, websites, you know, the truthuncover.com. And they tell you, guys, I found it in 2019 on the 18th of October. God is going to do this and that. And, you know, people break open because this book, you're, you're going to find the, the middle portion especially has some really difficult, confusing at times and strange problems prophecies and dreams on Daniel's part. And some of it is referring to the coming of Jesus Christ. And if you dive into those, you're going to come away so blessed to see the detail of God's planning hundreds of years in advance. But some of these prophecies and dreams speak about things that have not come to pass and we don't fully understand and no one fully understands. But when someone chooses to major on the minors of the book, and they say, guys, this is the truth, and they send you these long WhatsApp messages with all these you know, hieroglyphics in, and they send you very poorly made Facebook videos about this is what God is saying, and you have to send it to your whole family, and you know, this is the, we have to wear this and say this and attend this festival and do this and put these things together, and you're just thinking, whoa, I just want to serve Jesus. I'm not sure about all this extra stuff. When we mysticize the Bible... It doesn't lead to disappointment like moralizing. It leads to distraction. We forget what we are called to do. And instead of being caught up in the beauty of God, we are, we are scrutinizing these strange little details on the ground. So I want to challenge us. Don't do that because this book is not a moral adventure story. And this book is not a tinfoil hat manual for strange prophecies. No, this book is simply saying that when I lean into God, even when everything around me looks very much opposite to what I think the will of God is, God is at work. God can be trusted. God can be known. He does not want us to simply just be there. He wants us to thrive. He has a calling upon our lives. So here's the big question. That's all we're going to wrestle with today. I think the difficult question underlying this book is this. When everything goes to hell in a handbasket, when the world is burning... When things around me are difficult, the question arises in every Christian's heart, every person's heart, is God still good? And is God still in control? When everything around me looks like it is just going south, is God still good? And is God still in control? This is the essence of the book of Daniel. We're not going to answer that this morning, by the way. That is, that's a hundred years worth of sermons right there to scratch the surface of that question. It's vexed human hearts since there have been human hearts. But I want to just scratch the surface of it this morning and give you a sense of hope from this book. So, friends, to understand, if we're going to attain that question this morning, is God still good? Is He still in control when things look the way they look in our country, in our city, in my family, in my health, in my marriage? We need to understand the trauma that the Israelites faced. You have to understand that Jerusalem and Babylon were the antithesis of each other. Everything that Jerusalem stood for, Babylon was the opposite of that. They were the people of God, and Babylon were known as these pagan, you know, God worshippers sacrificing their children at the altars of their gods. It was a brutal society. And then, can you imagine, you see yourself as the chosen people of God, and this nation comes and brutalizes you. 
they come and destroy everything that you hold dear and kidnap your people. How can that happen? Can you imagine? Because I know for a fact the first thing that probably came into the Israelite people's minds and their hearts is what you and I think. Has God abandoned us? Has God abandoned us? Is he still good? Is he still in control? Where are you? Have you fallen asleep in the wheel, God? Now listen to this. There are two, just two little moments from this scripture this morning we're going to look at. And I think they are so profound. These two things are worth thinking about for a long time, friends. Listen to what it says here in verse 1. It says, in the year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, that's now the king of Judah, but listen to the, the verbs being used here of the king of Babylon. He is at work. It says your King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. King Nebuchadnezzar carried them, his people, to the land of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar put the vessels of you know, the people of God in the treasury of his God. He was doing all of these things. He was brutalizing. He was killing and raping and pillaging. He was actively involved. And yet, listen to this little detail in verse 2. It says, the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him. Friend, that is a very difficult and profound idea. This king and his empire were doing what they had always been doing out of the free will focus of their heart and corruption and depravity. And yet the Bible says God was in control. God was still very much in control. You see, from the very first page of this book, Daniel understands something so important. That God is in control even over those who are in control. Even when those who are in control are leading us or are steering us or are causing things in our lives that are broken and hurtful and painful, God is above even all of that. Daniel was not someone who was, you know, just caught up with adventure and strange prophecies. He was a man, if he had one thing going for him in his heart, it's that he understood that God, no matter what is going on around me, is still in control. He is still good. From the first page to the last, he knew the foundation of his hope and wisdom was God was still there. Friends, the question for you and me this morning, if you are a Christ follower, is this. Is God, the God in your heart that you serve, is he big enough to handle the tension between the free world decisions of people and the, the direction that our society goes in, as it were, and still being sovereignly good and control at the same time? Is the God of my heart so big that he is able to allow us to make our mistakes and do what we do and live our lives and let society at times make stupid U-turns and still be in control? Is your God big enough for that? Is your God bigger than your Babylon? That's what this book asks of you and me. Now, I was thinking of this video I watched the other day. It's this YouTube drummer called David Kohler. He's a professional musician. And he was speaking of the fact that over the last few years of his life, he was contracted out to one of these cruise ship companies where every night they have these massive shows, you know, a whole bunch of world-class musicians on stage. And he was doing a video tour of the ship. 
And he was telling the people about, you know, this is where you can go and eat, and this is where you can go and exercise, and, you know, this is how the internet works, and this is where you're allowed to go and play and, and dance and swim. And, I mean, the options on these modern ships, it's endless. And he says, you know, because I'm a staff member, I can do pretty much anything. So they don't have a, a window in their cabin. So he says, sometimes I just sleep for most of the day before playing in the evenings. Other time I go out and I eat healthily and I exercise, I do my thing. You know, the one thing that he never spoke about in that whole video is how he goes and he sits down in the captain's chair and he steers the ship where it's supposed to go. He never says that. And yet for three years, with all the choices that he makes on that ship, the ship has gotten to where it's supposed to go. Friends, I don't want to tell you today, and Daniel's not trying to say that we can't make significant decisions, that we don't have the will and the agency to live out our lives. No, Daniel will say, and the rest of the Bible will say, that your decisions matter. Your decisions have consequences. I can't throw the decisions that I make in my life, good and bad, back into God back into my parents' hands, back into my friends, and just say, it's, it's not me, it's you. I don't have a choice. He doesn't say that we're a bunch of puppets or automatons just living out kind of, you know, mechanically what God has destined for us. No. He says, on the ship, do what you want. But guess what? At the end of the day, the ship will get to where it's supposed to go. In the greater scheme of things, God is in control. That is the focus of this book. Is God bigger than the Babylon that you are sitting at at the moment? You know, the Christian philosopher, Ravi Zacharias, he puts it like this. He says, for us to serve this God, to know this God, to trust this God, he says, to allow God to be God, we must follow him for who he is and what he intends, not for what we want or what we prefer. Is my God so comfortably small that I can package him in what's comfortable and safe for me? Is he big enough that he is powerful enough? Is he wise enough that even when everything around me goes south, it goes to hell in a handbasket, that I can say he is still good. He is still in control. Proverbs 19.21 says it like this. It says, many are the plans in a person's heart. Yes, make those decisions. But the Lord's decree will prevail. At the end of the day, history in its totality with all the decisions and the brokenness and the joy and the hurt, history will wrap up the way that God wants it to wrap up. How does that work? I don't know. That is the scariest and strangest and most profound tension that the human heart has to live in that we choose. And yes, there is brokenness. And yes, there is pain. And yes, there is suffering. But God is good and in control. Isaiah 59 or 55, 9, famous portion of scripture. God says, you have to trust me like this. I'm not like you. He says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is not looking down on us when he says this. He's not denigrating your intelligence. He is saying, friends, at the end of the day, we are like ants trying to understand the internet. We are like insects trying to understand Bitcoin. We are like gnats flying around trying to understand Brexit, it is way beyond our pay grade. And God doesn't say, understand. He says, trust me. I am bigger than the Babylon that you see around you. Daniel understood something about that. You see, often I think, if it comes to just this, this feeling of, but, you know, but is he good? 
Maybe he's in control, but is he good? I think we often think, and every generation says that. Isn't it so classic? Even maybe the multi-generational people sitting here with parents and their kids, you would have heard your parents saying, oh, in our day, you know, things were so much better in this new generation. Every generation since we've had generations have thought that they had it better in the olden days. Things have always been going even further south than people have thought it can go south. We always think that we have it worse. Now, respectfully, I know of many difficult people and many difficult situations and many difficult things that you are facing in your life, and I don't want to limit those in any way, but I want to tell us, friends, we have got no idea what the people of Israel faced in this season of their life. Let me give you a quick little overview of some of the things that Daniel and his friends and his people that they were subjected to. You see, the Bible says in this passage that they were ruled now suddenly by this godless king and a godless nation. It says that he called these young men without defect and, you know, physical defect and good looking and suitable for instruction. They were called now to serve in the king's palace. That nation that you despise, guess what? You are now under my thumb, my friend. You know, the, the Babylonian empire is all throughout the Bible, the archetype of evil, even in the book of Revelation. In chapter 18, the strange book, it again refers back to say that Babylon is what evil is made up of. And that's the nation you suddenly are found under. This king, Nebuchadnezzar, anything that you can read about him historically or in the Bible, you will see that he is a vindictive, difficult. He is a man who turns on a dime. He was hot-headed. He was cruel. And now he's your king. Now he's your boss. Now he's your leader. But secondly, they were forced into a godless education system, steered towards godless practices, and they now wanted to force them into a godless vision for their life. So it says here that the the main eunuch, he was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend to the king. So they were doing a a BCom, you know, uh, what would he call it? Um, maybe witchcraft. They were doing a BCom witchcraft in the Babylonian University, um, you know, international credits or whatever it's called. That was the life. You used to hear about the depraved practices of these people who would take their newborns and sacrifice them on altars. And guess what? Now you're going to study that, my friend. You will have to become uh, a champion of this pagan culture. You will learn, you will study, you will be forced into it. That was Daniel's reality. More than that, it says that he was given a godless name as well. So it says here, all of his friends, they had their names changed. So Daniel gets this name, Belteshazzar. And Daniel actually means, God is my judge. He's my refuge. He is the one that I run to. His new name means Bel's prince. Bel was a title given to one of their gods, Marduk. So in a sense, his name is now the prince of demons. That's your new name. Never, ever will everyone call you Daniel again. And finally, all of the commentators, most of them agree that the ultimate ultimate bit of humiliation for Daniel and his friends, especially for this specific group it speaks of, the good-looking guys, the the guys of high repute. It speaks of the eunuch, the high eunuch. And if you know what a eunuch is, it's it's a male who has been, he's been deprived of his maleness. His maleness has been removed of him. All of these guys agree that Daniel and his friends had exactly the same thing done to them. You know why? Because this king says, you are going to look after everything that is dear to me, including my harem of women. I'm not taking any chances with these Jewish men. So Daniel and his friends are castrated under this new regime. Now I ask you, 
what kind of storms we are facing at the moment as the Christian church, as Doxa Hatfield. Man, persecution this morning, coming to church, it was rough. This is the life that Daniel lived. And yet, in the middle of that, the world around him wanted this focus, this life. And I want to show you the second profound thing. I think this is so amazing. Listen to this. In verse 3, it says, the king ordered Ashpenaz, this is the eunuch now that's taking through all these difficult things. He's going, to, he's going to castrate them and change their names. He's going to put them through this godless curriculum, a, a new phase of their life under this oppressive regime. He says, the king ordered that that be happening. But listen to this, verse 17. But God gave. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king himself, the most powerful man in all of the empire. In every matter of wisdom and understanding, the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Do you see how clearly there are two intentions for these young men? There is the intention and the purpose and the will of the king. This will happen. And then there is the will and the intention and the purpose of God who says, oh no, I decide. And even when everything in your life is falling apart, God says, I have a purpose for you. And yes, things might look hairy at the moment. And yes, we might never see it fully fixed and, and restored in our lifetime. But guess what? At the end of the day, to the glory of God and to the good of the people of Pretoria and our country, my people's purpose will never be thwarted. I have a purpose for you. Yes, it says, the king ordered, but God gave. The king decided, but God gave. The king decreed, but God gave. And I want you to hear this, because in these seasons, as Christians, when everything around us is falling apart, when the wheels have come off, you know what is at stake? Your heart, your head, and your hands. Your identity, your maturity, and your capacity for what God has called you to can be derailed. And the enemy comes and the world comes and says, oh, this is great. I see you struggling at the moment. I see you suffering at the moment. I see the things of, the, of this country are stressing you out at the moment. So let me take captive that heart of yours, that identity of yours. We'll take it for ourselves. We will change your name. We will change your identity. You will fall in line with what this country and this world and this society says is important. Who are you? Oh, well, you are what you do. You are your salary. You are your job. You are you, your car. You're the suburb you live in. You are the degrees you have. You are the work that you do. You are the person that's standing next to you. You are your kids and your good health. You are the status that you have. Or maybe on the other side, you are the brokenness that's been caused over your life. You are the shame that other people brought into you. You are that abuse that someone forced on you. You are the failure of the past. You are the sin of the blotches of your character. Who are you? The world says in those broken seasons, oh, let me come and fetch your heart for myself. Yes, you're a child of God and Jesus Christ, you know him. Yes, you find your hope and your life in him, but I will nullify your heart. I will bring it low to where your identity is what I choose it to be. Or the 
The world says, no, 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 that's fine. We'll make sure that your mind, your maturity, what has God called me to do to make decisions and to live with wisdom for him? No, as, as you know, Babylon brought them into this curriculum to say, no, 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 now it's our ways, it's our practices. You're going to become one of those good old, you know, just lukewarm Christians who pretty much looks exactly like the rest of the world. Because who wants to make waves? Who wants to live radically? Who wants to do things that might stir the boat a bit? No, just fall in line with the paradigm of the world. Or you know what, exactly like Daniel and his friends, we will come and desecrate your body. We will dismember you, disintegrate you. We will make sure that you are no longer in one piece to make sure that your hands, that your purpose has been lost. Yes, you're going to go to church every now and then. Yes, you're going to pray a bit. You might tithe here and there, pray before lunchtime. But you will, you will lose, you will forsake, you will be dismembered of the great purpose that God has for you. As a teacher, as a, as, a, as a doctor, as a lawyer, as a mom, as a father, as a painter, programmer, poet, pastor, you will forget, you will be dismembered of your hands, your purposes. But God says, but God says in this season, don't let the enemy get hold of your heart, of your head, and your hands. Remember that I have called you to a great purpose, to live for the glory of God and the good of the people of the city. I will restore and redeem and renew. I will put you onto a high place where you serve in such a way that the society around you will say, this has to be God. You know, I think of, of Germany I think of the Jewish Holocaust, and I think of hell on earth itself. Six million people slaughtered, starved to death, poisoned. Horrific experiments done on it. David Peck, he's a theologian, he says, if you look into the eye of the Holocaust, if you do some of that research, you will come out for weeks just wrecked in your soul. How we can do that to one another. That, friends, is Babylon right there. And I think of two people caught in the same hell, and how different the purposes of God, is allowed to or robbed out of their lives. I think of Ans van Dijk. She was a Jewish woman who actually, after much pressure, she decided that she's going to, she's going to move over to the other side. She became a traitor of her own people. Go back to the Jewish communities, live amongst them, and pretend to be on their side. But Jewish people, even our own family, her own parents, some of our own siblings, she just gave them over by the hundreds. Eventually tried as a criminal of war after everything was wrapped up. And then I think of someone in exactly the same hell, exactly the same place, Corrie ten Boom. This is, a, this is a Dutch watchmaker who together with her father and her sisters, they hid away Jewish people. And they saved hundreds of moms and dads and children from this evil regime. Do you know what? They were in exactly the same Babylon but she understood this hell will not rob my heart and my head and my hands of the purposes of God. Even if I don't see it all just turning out extreme makeover style in the end, I will live for the glory of God and for the good of those around me. And listen to what she says. How do you trust a God in a season like that? She says this. When a train goes, this is Corrie ten Boom, through a tunnel and it gets dark. This is when it's hell. This is when it's Babylon. This is when everything's falling apart in your life. You don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. 
God says, I will redeem your heart. Because here it is, friends, at the end of the day, you know what the enemy wants to do? He wants to destroy your identity. God wants to secure it in this season. The enemy wants to delay your maturity. God wants to shape it. In this season, the enemy wants to dismember your capacity. God wants to strengthen it. The doctor that you were made to be, the businessman you were made to be, the parent you were made to be in Babylon, if God is big enough, his rule and reign will come. So I want to end off like this. Maybe the worship team can join me. We're going to respond. And I want you to hear this because, friends, this can sound so abstract. Man, how, I'm not Corrie Tim Boom. How do I trust in this kind of God? And I want to take you to what Tim Keller says about the cross of Jesus Christ. Because we don't have this abstract philosophy out there. We have God coming incarnate in flesh in your brokenness and mine. And he makes a statement about this big question that haunts us. Is God good? Is he still in control? And listen to what he says in his book, The The Reason for God. He says, Christianity alone among the world religions claims that God became uniquely and fully human in Jesus Christ. And therefore knows firsthand despair, rejection, loneliness, poverty, bereavement, torture, and imprisonment. In his death, God suffers in love, identifying with the abandoned and God forsaken. So if we again ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? God, why in our country? Why in my life? He says this, we still do not know if we look at the cross what the answer is. However, we know what the answer is not. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. If I ask the question, God, when it's hell itself around me, are you still good? Are you still in control? The cross of Jesus gives an emphatic yes. I am good and I am in control. And I want to tell you that as the king, as society, as the world declares, decrees, says, I call. And you know what what happened with Daniel and his friends? God set them apart. He consecrated them. He said, I have a purpose for you. I have a mission for you. I have a calling for you to bring wholeness and hope and love to this world, to seek out the lost, to heal the pain of the city, to make new what is broken in our society. I've set you this morning apart. Don't let the enemy rob your hands and your head and your heart of your purpose in this season. Jeremiah 1 verse 5 says, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. Acts 13 to you, as they were worshiping in the Lord, and they were fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. 2 Timothy 2.21. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Hear me this morning, doctor, lawyer, teacher, father, friend. Hear me today, programmer, priest, prophet, painter. God is good and he is in control 
and he has set you apart for a work in this city, in this country, in this season.